Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I'm co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm gonna to walk you through the very first wine club of 2021. Uh, for this month, we decided to do something extra special. So basically, uh, a couple months ago, I guess more than six months ago now, when I sort of realized that the likelihood of me uh, going home to see my father for Christmas seemed really, really unlikely, um, I decided I, I wanted to sort of uh, find a way of sort of maybe sharing my New Year's traditions with everybody in the club, uh, even though, you know, I, I couldn't necessarily participate with my own family. Um, so every year for, for New Year's Day, or at least for the last four years, uh, I've gone out to visit my dad who lives in uh, western New York, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere, frankly, uh, <laughs> halfway between Buffalo and Rochester in a town nobody's ever heard of before, uh, with just, uh, you know, a couple thousand people. And uh, so on, on New Year's Day, we usually start a fire, um, sit around what we call the, the cowboy cauldron. It's uh, sort of like this hanging uh, metal bowl that we, we fill with logs and, and light on fire and you can cook things over it or just stand by it to keep warm, which in Western New York is, is definitely likely. And uh, we, we basically roast hot dogs and, and drink champagne. We have sort of a tradition every year where we compare different uh, local hot dog brands. If you've ever been to New York or basically anywhere that's that's sort of remotely on that East Coast, you'll realize that they are very um, proud of their local food items. And that goes right down to how you cut the hot dog bun to, you know, what condiments you're using. And so uh, every year we sort of make our, our own version of that and try hot dogs side by side and drink, uh, you know, usually large bottles of champagne. And so I, I kind of went out of my way to um, convince one of the best champagne producers in the entire world to sell us some wine this year. Uh, and luckily enough, because of everything that's happened with sort of the pandemic and uh, certain countries being more shut down than others, uh, it meant that he actually had a little bit of champagne to go around. So we were actually able to acquire enough um, champagne for the entire wine club, which we absolutely never thought that we'd ever be able to do. Uh, it meant that we had to squeeze it down to, to two bottles for this club, but I think most people uh, will appreciate and, and are very much deserving of uh, a special bottle for, you know, the to kick off the new year. Um, I'm really hoping that the wine shops are able to get the wines in before the holidays so you can maybe participate in, you know, my sort of family tradition of uh, drinking champagne and eating hot dogs on New Year's Day. Uh, so we'll, we'll try and send this out as quickly as possible and, and try and give you an accurate date on when your wines will be ready for pickup. So the, the champagne that we chose for this club is one that I've admired for a very long time. Um, I uh, first picked up a bottle of um, Charles Dufour's um, Boule de Comptoir while I was in New York. Um, there's this really fantastic wine shop um, that carries basically all the all the wineries that I really admire, that I really look up to. And whenever I'm looking for inspiration on, you know, what's new and what's exciting, I, I often go there. Uh, I'll include their, their information um, <laughs> in, the, in the email for those of you who like shopping abroad. Um, either way, I, I was looking through this selection and realized that they, they had a little champagne section and that a couple of the producers I'd never seen before. And somebody who is... 
you know, a self-declared champagne geek like myself who really enjoys drinking champagne as often as, as you know, my budget will allow, uh, to see producers that I had never heard of before were, was really exciting. And so I, you know, asked their staff and um, they were really excited and they uh, suggested that I try Boule de Comptoir and that it was, you know, the best bang for buck on the planet and that this guy is ultra cult, uh, you know, incredibly well-made wines, wildly complex, uh, and drink way outside of their price point. Like they were saying that this is comparable to, you know, Solos, which sells for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars a bottle. Uh, and they're like, honestly, in a blind tasting, you'd have a hard, hard time deciding which was which, uh, unless you were very familiar with that particular wine, which it would be hard to be because it's very hard to get your hands on. Uh, and so I, I brought this wine home, uh, drank it for Christmas, as you'd expect, uh, and was, again, completely dumbfounded by how energetic and how pure and, and lively and complex. Um, champagne often sort of nods towards one particular flavor profile, and, and that's sort of away from fruit and towards things like minerality and what we call autolysis. So autolysis is uh, when yeast break down and release certain flavors. And this only happens from uh, extended aging in contact with the lees. In some cases, you know, some of the champagnes that uh, I've been lucky to taste have been aged on their lees, so on those spent yeast cells, uh, for decades. And so often the emphasis is, is, again, not necessarily on fruit, but more on sort of these secondary and tertiary characteristics. Um, with this wine, what I found really interesting was this balance of primary fruit uh, and complexity of primary fruit uh, in combination with, again, all those other flavors that you'd expect out of really serious champagne. Um, and so I felt like this was an entirely different style of champagne. It was way more vinous. It, it drank like wine as opposed to just like sparkling wine. Uh, it really sort of crossed those, those boundaries and ended up being way more applicable to certain food items um, and a little more palatable to, um, you know, a larger consumer base. Uh, a lot of people buy champagne for special occasions when realistically champagne or champagne proper, things that are literally called champagne because they come from Champagne, uh, a region in France, um, those wines aren't necessarily universally appealing all the time. Uh, you know, they're quite mineral. They can be quite austere. They can be quite steely, uh, very acidic. Champagne has to be quite acidic in order for it to maintain its bubbles and intensity and age for as long as it does. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't find champagne is necessarily a consumer-friendly wine um, until you get into maybe some of the more fringe styles. Uh, things like rosé champagne are, are going to be a lot more appealing to uh, a wider audience, yet you seldom see people actually buy them because they think that they're less serious. But, you know, if less serious means more enjoyable, then, you know, often I'd prefer less serious. So this is that great combination of being extremely serious, but uh, maybe appealing to a larger group of people. So to give you some background, uh, Charles Dufour uh, was born and raised in Champagne. Uh, his, uh, I believe he inherited the vineyards from his mother. Um, and since 2013 has been uh, converting his vineyards to basically as close to biodynamic as he can get. Um, you know, he doesn't have a biodynamic certification, but does have an organic certification um, and is doing, again, a, a lot of biodynamic practices. So things like um, using herbal teas uh, derived from different medicinal ingredients as opposed to using things like copper or excessive amounts of sulfur. Uh, so he's trying to get as, as much away from um, 
again, anything that could be harmful, you know, he's trying to take out of the vineyard. Um, he's in an area called the Cote Bar. So um, this area is in the south of Champagne. It's actually very far away from what we'd consider Champagne proper. Um, so you have sort of like the three main regions of Champagne or subregions, I guess, of Champagne, um, which is the Montagne de Rheim. Uh, you have um, the Cote Blanc and the Marne, um, the Marne Valley, Val de la Marne. Um, and these three areas sort of comprise like the major portion of, of Champagne. Like this is where most of the Champagne is coming from. Um, at least the ones that we're drinking on our market, like for export market and, and especially in Canada, where we do tend to favor sort of more luxury champagne producers. Um, this is the area. These are the famous areas. These are the famous crews. Um, and this area is, is almost so far south that it's actually, well, it's actually closer to Chablis than it is to the rest of Champagne, if you look at it on a map. Um, and because of that, it has slightly different soils. It's a little bit warmer than the rest of Champagne and tends to offer uh, these sort of maybe like fruitier, more bombastic styles of Champagne, which again is something that I really enjoy and that I think consumers would like a lot. Um, so although it may not be as prestigious, uh, there's starting to be some really legendary winemakers in this area. Um, you know, most notably, uh, you have Les Croces de Jeanne, um, which is uh, Cedric Bouchard's project. And those wines are, again, in the same sort of vein where they're incredibly undervalued. Uh, you know, champagne collectors all over the world fight over this limited allocation of wine that often retails for less than $100 versus, you know, you can basically buy a bottle of Dom Perignon any day of the week, despite the fact that it's, you know, hundreds of dollars a bottle. And so this offers like absolutely astonishing value. First of all, uh, you know, the farming is is infinitely better than, uh, or at least more holistic than most of the vineyards that are going into something like Dom Perignon. Production is uh, a fraction of a percentage of what Dom Perignon produces in a particular year. You know, they're, they're producing tens of thousands of cases, from my understanding, uh, of bottles that are worth hundreds of, of dollars uh, versus, you know, Charles Dufour is a very, very tiny operation um, with only a couple hectares to his name. So this is like, again, just such a special thing that we get to share. If you look back historically at Champagne, uh, you know, if you go back as several hundred years, Champagne was not a famous region. Um, and if anything, it was actually famous for still uh, wines that were often like almost rosé. Um, they often called this style partridge eye because they had almost that like partridge eye color, that kind of like gray, gray pink kind of color to them. Uh, and they were like fairly, you know, well known, but not particularly famous. Um, and it was only once this sort of innovation of uh, British glass. So, so at that point, basically bottles, um, the way that we made glass bottles, they weren't strong enough to withstand the pressure of sparkling wine. So it wasn't until the British invented uh, a new way of making glass um, and champagne producers uh, had their wine bottled uh, often in England. And then the wine would ferment in the bottle, but the glass was you know, powerful enough to actually keep that fermentation inside the bottle without exploding all over the place. Uh, that's basically the birth of Champagne. Uh, so it was kind of by accident and it wasn't always a famous region. And so now we think of this region as being 
um, sort of ubiquitous and, 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 you know, everybody knows it. But if you look back a couple hundred years, it wasn't always that way. Um, so it's, it's really cool to see producers like this that are trying to break the norms a little bit and show that, uh, you know, in a region that's domi- dominated by, uh, you know, LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, uh, like these, you know, billion dollar companies that are owning most of the, the wineries and the, and the vineyards in this area, it's cool to see small producers starting to sort of rise to the surface again and prove that you could drink champagne uh, for, again, a modest price, all things considered. Uh, definitely more modest than, again, some of the top tier, uh, but larger production producers. Um, so champagne, by law, has to be made from a handful of different grape varieties. The most common of those are Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Meunier. Um, these often make up the majority of the blend for, for champagne, um, but there are a handful of other grape varieties that are permitted, and in this case, we actually have Pinot Blanc. Pinot Blanc makes up a tiny, tiny percentage of the entire production uh, of champagne in, or of grapes in champagne in the entire region. Um, again, we're talking about like a percent um, of the entire production. So it's super cool that he has it in the vineyard. I find that it offers um, maybe sort of like a softer, fruitier note, which again sort of goes with the theme that we've had so far, which is that this wine has a little bit more fruit than a lot of champagnes. Uh, and I think part of that is coming from this, this Pinot Blanc edition. Um, the other thing about champagne is that it has to be aged for uh, quite a substantial time. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about often producers will age for years before release. So this one in particular is uh, the 2017 vintage, uh, and it's just come out on the market. Like it's it's literally just been released. I think this was disgorged in, in June. We can talk about disgorging at another time. Um, but uh, it's the 2017 vintage, but 15% of this wine is actually back vintages. So everything from 2010, um, up till 2016. Uh, and it's this older wine that adds a lot of complexity, a lot of nuance, um, and some of the textural elements as well, more savory, uh, more oxidative, more like dried apple and, and spiced nuts. Um, so it's cool that he's blending in some of these, these older wines as well. Again, it definitely adds for a lot of complexity, but because he's working with sort of an isolated vineyard, uh, you're still getting a lot of the terroir showing through, even though he's blending from vintage to vintage and blending multiple different grape varieties. Um, so yeah, th- this, is, this wine is outrageously complex for me. Uh, it's quite vinous. It actually has characteristics of, of wine, of really good white wine. So you can imagine the best wines of, you know, sort of Burgundy or from Chablis in particular. This has a lot in common with really good like Grand Cru Chablis for me, uh, especially with a little bit of age on it. If you've ever been lucky enough to have uh, a really good bottle of aged Chablis, uh, you'll definitely notice sort of the family resemblance between these two wines. Not only that, but those two wines just happen to be grown on very similar soil types. Uh, so in um, in Champagne in general, what makes them so famous is these chalky soils. Uh, there's a couple different types of chalk in this area, but the one that we're concerned with, you know, today at least, is, is Kimmeridgian, uh, which is, again, the same sort of soil type that you would have uh, in part of Chablis. So again, more reasons for these to be similar rather than different from one another. Um, yeah, from a flavor perspective, this is wildly complex. Uh, I decided to actually keep a bottle open for several days and actually taste it for several days, which again, you may think is total sacrilege for uh, a bottle of sparkling wine, but this wine, uh, 
it just has so much potential for for aging and opening up and complexity and, and pairing. Uh, and so I decided to sort of leave it for a couple of days and see what happens. Uh, day two, it got wildly tropical. It had all these sort of uh, dried pineapple notes to it, um, this savory sort of um, like almost like papaya, like, you know, papaya gets that like a little bit of funk to it. Like it kind of developed some of those characteristics to it. This really like honeyed, honeysuckle, saffron, all those sort of characteristics coming through, um, which again, isn't always the case with, with champagne. They can be more steely and austere. Um, but this wine in particular showed a lot of, of I don't know, body and boisterousness. Um, when you first open it, it's going to be more tight. It's going to have more, again, like apple, uh, this really cool white truffle note that's like, again, it's like a little bit like sweet and mushroomy all at the same time. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know, like lots of dried nuts, things like that. Uh, it's just a really lovely style that I think will appeal to a lot of people and, and be, uh, for, for people who haven't had, you know, real champagne from champagne, this will be a really cool introduction because it is so complex and so so interesting. Um, as far as pairings go, again, I said it in the intro that I think that this wine, uh, you know, have it with hot dogs. <laughs> Do me a favor. I would really appreciate it if everybody sent me their their hot dog and champagne pictures. Uh, you know, I, I'm definitely missing my family this year and it, and it sucks not to, to be around them. And I'm sure a lot of you are in the same situation, but if you are lucky enough to be, you know, hanging out near, uh, near a campfire, uh, you know, with your loved ones, definitely snap a photo of you crushing some champagne and eat some hot dogs. You know, even if you have to boil them on the stove, I'm, I'm still totally okay with that. I like me a good, uh, good steamed hot dog as well. Uh, you know, com coming from Montreal and all got to got to get your all dressed steamy. Um, so yeah, whatever your hot dog preference, go for it. Veggie dogs. I, I won't, uh, I won't bat an eye at a, at a veggie dog. I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Um, but champagne is ultimately the most parable wine on the planet. If you've ever watched any of the, the Psalm documentaries, uh, you'll notice that basically at any opportunity when they're asked, uh, you know, like basically the best sommeliers in the world, whenever they're asked for, Hey, what would you pair with this particular dish? They almost immediately say champagne first. And then they start thinking they're like, well, champagne for sure. Uh, would be the best option because it always is the best option. Um, there's something about uh, the combination of bubbles. Uh, so like CO2 actually like cleanses your palate basically, uh, as well as acidity and champagne is notoriously high in acidity. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if I got, yeah, the pH on this is, is 3.13. So for those of you science nerds out there, uh, it's, it's, you know, quite low pH, which means quite high acidity. Um, there are champagnes on the market that are under three pH. Again, for those those nerds out there who really want to know that sort of stuff, um, some come in at around two nine. Uh, and again, these are going to be super austere, very tart, very linear. Uh, versus, he's able to get his wine a little bit riper, but still maintain enough acidity for it to to you know hold its bubbles. Um, the nice thing about acidity too is that it requires less sulfur dioxide, and this is. Um, I think only one of two champagnes available on the market that are made with no sulfur dioxide, so no no SO2. Um, that's it's it's comp it's wildly rare to see champagne made without uh, sulfur. It's again in an area where you have to sell your wine for a lot of money in order just to break even because the cost of land is so expensive, the production is so expensive because you're keeping these wines for for you know in this case uh, you know over three years now. Um, it's risky to not add 
uh, SO2 unless you're 100% confident that the wine's going to be perfect. And fortunately, this wine is beyond perfect. Uh, we also went out of our way to ship this in refrigerated container all the way here from France. So we know that it's that it's in prime condition, as good as it can be. Um, so yeah, we're, we're super excited about it. Uh, I could rant all day about this, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep it to the 20 minutes that I've already been talking, I'm sure. Um, so next up, so for our, our second wine, uh, again, we are only doing two this month just because we had to use uh, a massive amount of the budget. We definitely blew the budget on this one. I think we're like $10 over or something like that, which is fine. I'm sure you guys all appreciate it. Um, so the second wine that we have, uh, this is kind of a cool one because... Um, I think in the first year that we ever did the wine club, so like three years ago, um, we used uh, Populus's Wabi Sabi. And this is uh, like two vintages later. And not only that, but this wine changes drastically from year to year. So I thought it'd be really cool to show off the brand new vintage that just came out. Um, it literally just arrived uh, just in time for the wine club. Uh, I think like sometime in the middle of December it got here, which was you know, not, not the greatest timing, but definitely uh, stoked to have it, you know, in, in time to be able to share it with all of you. Um, so the Wabi Sabi from Populous, uh, this is coming from Northern California. Um, it's mostly coming from an area called Mendocino, uh, which is sort of north of Napa. And this area starts to get quite a bit more rugged, um, a lot more you know, it has a lot of similar similarities with uh, Oregon, um, also from a climate perspective, but you have a lot of wooded hills and, and it's quite wild up there. Uh, I believe they're in the town of uh, Orinda, California. And so this is, this is a beautiful area. Like again, you're getting a lot of redwood trees up here, uh, all these beautiful forests, um, as well as some really cool coastlines. So if you ever get a chance, you know, it might be worth taking that drive from, from Portland to San Francisco and you'll, you'll pass through uh, Mendocino County if you, if you do a, a quick little detour over to where Populous is. Um, but this area is really beautiful. It's, it's, um, I like to think that it's like a little bit more temperate than some of the other regions of California that get quite hot. So here you're able to make wines that are a little more elegant, um, wines with a little bit lower alcohol than in a lot of California. Um, when we were talking to to Shant, the owner of uh, of Populous, uh, and his other project Les Lunes, which I know everybody in the in the club's a huge fan of, we finally just got another shipment from Les Lunes after like uh, I think almost more than a year. Uh, so definitely seek those wines out. But uh, we were talking to Shant about it, and again, this was a couple years ago now, um, and he talked the idea about the idea of like California bistro wine, and it made so much sense to me. This idea that in California, in the middle of summer, it's like, you know, it's 40 degrees out. Um, and the cuisine of California is like light and healthy. You know, you're having like uh, salmon pizza and you're having like avocado toast and like things like that. The bounty of California's amazing, uh, amazing gardens and, you know, the, the produce is endless. So, you know, this sort of maybe more vegetable, light-handed sort of cuisine, um, and yet the wines that have historically been famous from California are completely undrinkable with that style. Like you really wouldn't want to be drinking, you know, a 14 and a half percent alcohol, super oaky uh, American cab uh, with any of those food items. And so for them, their whole idea was like, 
If you go anywhere in France, the local wine goes with the local food, and it's developed over the course of centuries or, or even over a thousand years in some cases. And so they're like, we need to start looking at that and, and make styles of wine that make sense with our climate, uh, with our disposition as people. Uh, and so they decided on this sort of idea of like making a California bistro wine, something that was drinkable, joyous, that you could have with all those sort of like California foods. Um, and it changes from year to year. Um, they do two different ones that are sort of in this range. Um, one is the Reverse, and then the other one is this particular wine, which is the Wabi Sabi, which was sort of done as a celebration of all the, the weird and wonderful grape varieties that they're able to get in at their winery. Um, they're working with some really spectacular uh, grape growers. Um, they themselves, so Shant and, and, his, par and his business partner Diego, um, are actually like farming consultants. They actually help people farm their vineyards better. And so that's basically their real job. Uh, the winery basically only pays for itself uh, and they actually make their, their real money off of doing this consulting and, uh, and, and this farming basically. So the vineyards that they choose to work with for their particular project are like incredible. Um, in particular, they work with Larry Venturi, uh, who basically taught them how to farm super well. Uh, and so they are infinitely grateful to him and all his hard work. And they're able to get, uh, you know, a little bit of Zinfandel and a little bit of Carignan and stuff like that from him for their particular, uh, for, mostly for Le Lune, but also I think some of the Zin in here and some of the uh, Carignan in here are also from that, those Venturi that Venturi vineyard um, farmed by Larry Venturi. And some of those vines are, again, 50 plus years old, which is really cool. Um, the interesting addition this year that we've we've never seen before, uh, or at least that we, you know, that I've never seen before, is Chenin Blanc. Uh, so this is mostly Zinfandel. Uh, Zinfandel makes up like the, sort of like the bulk of it, along with Carignan. Um, and then uh, Chenin Blanc makes up, you know, sort of a smaller component, uh, but Chenin Blanc being a white grape that tends to be quite high in acid, but also quite like rich in body, depending on how you're you're farming it. Especially in California, it tends to lean more towards maybe a more Chardonnay, um, you know, sort of weight to it. Uh, you know, a little more plush, a little more soft. So the fact that they've used that in a red wine is really interesting to me. Um, I feel like it adds this this real juiciness to it. Um, and this variety of fruit, you get a lot more stone fruit, um, you know, leaning more towards those sort of like plummy, almost apricot pit kind of characteristics that you don't normally get off of, you know, red wine strictly made from red grapes. Uh, there also are a handful of other grapes in here, but they don't even bother listing them on the label because they're such small production. Uh, it's Grenache, French Columbard, and Pinot Gris. Uh, so again, two other white grapes in there as well as a red grape. Um, the fermentation for this is done with a bunch of different things. Um, so you're doing some carbonic maceration, you're doing some fermentation in barrels, some in tank, uh, some in uh, what we call like flex tanks, which are um, basically like big sort of uh, like coated plastic tanks um, that breathe a lot like barrels, but are completely neutral. Uh, so they're using things like that. Um, and so you end up with this huge complexity of different flavors. They, they've done sort of every different winemaking technique uh, all in one with the entire quest being for brightness and freshness and drinkability and, um, and stability and all those sort of things. Um, historically, wines from them have been a little more on the reductive side, meaning that they require oxygen. They can have 
what we call volatile sulfur compounds, which are kind of, um, well, they, they, they smell a little bit sulfurous. And until the wine gets a chance to open up or age, um, those characteristics kind of be like hanging out. Versus in this vin uh, vintage, it's different. It's like, it's not reductive at all. It's way more um, approachable. Uh, it doesn't need aging or decanting or anything like that. It's, it's meant to just be like popped and poured and, and just enjoyed. Uh, I literally drank this last night, so it's, it's very fresh in my mind. It was a perfect pairing for some pizza. Um, and I uh, put on this, in, in, the, in the tasting notes that I've written for you guys, I've uh, opted to recommend a bunch of my favorite restaurants all around, uh, all around the province uh, and some things that I think would be really good as like takeout to pair with this. And so last night, obviously we had to test that out a little bit and, uh, and order some pizza and, and have this wine. Um, I'm always of the mindset that if a wine doesn't go with pizza, it's not a wine. Uh, going with pizza is a defining quality of, of being a wine. Uh, <laughs> like it has to, it has to be made from grapes, but it also has to go with pizza. Like those are the, the sort of, you know, caveats to, to it being a wine. Um, this wine, I think actually has like a little bit of potential for aging as well. Um, with their wines, they're always extraordinarily stable. Um, they're, they actually struggle to make wines that aren't ageful, wines that are like for young drinking, I find. Uh, all the wines that they, they make are always so serious. Um, it's always so impressive and, and just sort of built for the long haul, really stable. Like you can drink them over like three or four days. Um, this one though, it seems a lot more built for um, sort of drinking young, but again, definitely has the ability to go, you know, sort of like three, four more years for sure. Um, really fun style, really energetic. Um, Zinfandel tends to be super high in alcohol, uh, but they've really tamed that this year. Zinfandel is, is a very frustrating grape to deal with because uh, the berries all ripen at different speeds. So normally uh, every grape on a grape cluster would ripen at roughly the same time, you know, within a degree or two. Uh, versus on, on Zinfandel, you could have raisins, you could have perfectly ripe grapes, and you can have green underripe grapes all on the same cluster. So it's a huge pain in the butt to try and, you know, navigate trying to make a wine that has like the right amount of acidity and the right amount of alcohol and the right amount of richness. And so I think they've they've really wrangled it this year and done such an amazing job. Um, so we, we changed up the format a little bit for our write-up. Uh, we've tried to cram as much information into the about and pairing and, and taste section as possible and are going to be doing more of sort of like a rant in the uh, in the podcast, which you just listened to. Um, we've also started our uh, premium wine club at the same shops that our regular wine club is available at. Uh, again, because of AGLC regulations, I'm not allowed telling you where those are, but you can sign up for it at those shops. And the podcast is located uh, probably just below this one on, on Spotify and uh, Apple Music or in you know, whatever other device you're listening to it on. Um, so definitely give that a listen if you're looking for some other cool wines. Uh, the Premium Club has sort of even more rare items, although this month with us cramming champagne in here, I'm sure all the Premium Wine Club members will be a little bit jealous, although a lot of them are signed up for both. Uh, so um, yeah, we're going to try and cram as much information into these, these Wine Club podcasts as possible over the next little bit. Um, but if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, my email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, you can also head to our website. There's tons of really great information about these producers. It's just www.juiceimports.com. 
Um, we have write-ups about most of our producers, about most of the wines, but we also have a really great resources section that teaches you how to taste wine. Uh, there's a guide to the Okanagan. There is my personal list of uh, poetry on there that uh, are poets that I really like uh, reading. Um, there is a list to our a link to our playlists that we've made. We've made two so far, and Mark is currently working on the uh, on the third, which should be very hilarious. Um, and so, yeah, definitely check out our website and you know reach out to us if you if you need anything at all. Uh, we'll also be sending out a. Um, a little bit of a survey just to get your feedback on you know how the wine club has gone for the last uh, little bit here we've been up and running for a couple years now but uh, we want to get some feedback on sort of the wines we've used over the last six months or so uh, and just see if there's anything you'd like changed or any ways we can improve we're always trying to be better uh, <laughs> and uh, we, we love your feedback so thank you so much for taking the time uh, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to chat again soon and Hopefully we'll actually get to do, uh, you know, a wine club members only tasting in the new year once things open up a little bit. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the support. Uh, looking forward to hanging out with you in the new year. Cheers. Cheers.